put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. On this episode of Trumpet Dynamics. That's why everything is written so high is because that register is the only register where we can play like scales. It's not like playing on a B-flat trumpet where you have to play extremely high. When you get to that high C, then you can start to play a scale. We need to kind of be set to be able to play higher. It's not like Mahler or Hindemith where you kind of follow certain things. You have a lot more flexibility and you can do things and it's not wrong. An aspect where the performer is in a way part of the compositional process because of the freedom that we have in terms of the decision making. And so you kind of feel a connection in that sense. Let me tell you where all the cool kids are hanging out on social media. It is called the Trumpet Layer, brand new platform. It's kind of like where adults can hang out and act like adults, have fun, enjoy each other's company, and not worry about saying something and having your head chopped off because you say it in the wrong tone of voice. It's called the Trumpet Layer. Join the community at trumpetlayer.com. That's trumpetlayer.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. My name is James Newcomb, and you are listening to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. And I am delighted to bring onto the show today a young man that I have heard about over the years and have just met just now. And so you're going to be getting to know uh, Justin Bland right alongside me, young man, and he's already accomplished quite a bit. His website is justinblandtrumpet.com. Just go there, and he's got music clips, video clips, just a wonderful player. Uh, he's a specialist in the natural trumpet, Baroque trumpet, and he also sings. My goodness, what does this fellow not do? Just want to say welcome to the show, Mr. Justin Bland. Thank you for having me. Now, you are American, but you are located currently in Denmark, I understand. Correct. What was wrong with America that made you say, I have to go to Denmark? Well, I mean, nothing was wrong per se. It just happened to be that Denmark was a place where it's a little bit easier, I think, in general, especially as a, an early music specialist to be. I think it also was the, the cities I was living in because I was living in cities because I was going to school. So I moved away from Maryland where probably there's a little bit more activity um, before I actually really got into the scene. And then I moved to Cleveland. There's Apollo's Fire there, a really good group, um, but not so much else for us instrumentalists. And then I moved to Las Vegas where I got my doctorate. Obviously nothing really there, even though California is close. Um, so commuting. So living in places where I wasn't really working was tricky. But now I actually live in a, in a city where not only is there you know, work available, but it's so easy to get around um, to other parts of Europe to work there too. I think living in Europe, especially in Copenhagen, I think because of its location um, and its ease of access to other places has been um, beneficial for me. So there's more of a market and there's more of a interest in uh, just the general population, it seems, in early music. Yes, um, especially in Europe. I mean, Denmark is, I mean, there's interest in early music. I feel that it's still a little bit hard with trumpet here in general compared to other places, but there's also fewer players here. So then I tend to get a good amount of work. Um, but of course, it kind of balances out that there's not as much work. But then I also travel a lot it's still a much easier place to be than when I was living in the United States. Yes, I can see that. And I've spoken not necessarily to trumpet players, but a friend of mine is a hammer dulcimer player. And uh, he lived in 
Houston, I think, and he ended up in Asheville, North Carolina, which is much more, uh, like that type of music is much more accepted in Asheville, and now he lives in Colorado. His name is Joshua Messick, if anyone's looking for a, a great hammer dulcimer experience. He had the same experience, although it was not moving to a different country, it was a different state. Being in that environment of like-minded people makes all the difference, not just to not just for your career and your pocketbook, but your morale and probably your sense of feeling like you're contributing to society. Especially in Las Vegas, I would say, because of how extreme it is, not really feeling like there's anybody there really into your interest, that was a little bit tricky. So the casinos didn't have much of a demand for <laughs> early Baroque trumpet and countertenor singing. No, I remember living in Las Vegas and like I definitely worked a lot more in California than I worked in Las Vegas. Well, I mean, why, why would you get a doctorate at Las Vegas? Well, it ended up being that I got a really good assistantship. I like the teacher there and I have an uncle lives there so it worked out did you play modern trumpet there or natural trumpet for your like your studies oh yeah for my studies that was actually my doctorate's in modern so my master's is in early music and my undergraduates in modern as well so my only early music degree is my master's that's great man i mean that that's such a unique and and such a specialized niche and you you don't hear uh, that many people i know of a couple that they specialize early music and it, it, if you're looking for a way to set yourself apart, that would be, I mean, that's just, a, that's just a great way of doing it. I think Josh Cohen and Nate Mayfield, although Nate doesn't play that much anymore, there's only a handful of people who do what you do. If you're trying to make your mark somewhere, find one little niche and just do really well in that. That's today's hot business tip. Find a niche and do really well with it. And especially if you find something that you're really passionate about like for example like early music i have that extreme passion for so it makes it really easy even though like when i was living in the united states and i didn't have so many like-minded people immediately around me i still had so much passion for that area that it was it was still very easy for me to get into it and kind of develop that so i mean it's it's really good if you find a niche that you are passionate about then it's much easier can you recall the moment that early music, Baroque music, just lit your fire? It was actually from high school that that type of music really interested me. I didn't have access to early instruments until I began undergraduate, but actually just the, the style of Baroque music. I listened to a lot of piccolo trumpet playing, for example, and I knew that it was something that I really, really liked. You know, when I actually got my hands on an early instrument, then that kind of lit my fire even more. And so I knew I kind of wanted to specialize in that. Yeah. Was there like a recording or a concert of some sort that you're, it just, it just hit you. This is what I want to do. Listening to, I mean, every trumpet player, even the the modern trumpet players will know Nicholas Eklund, like hearing his recordings really kind of got me interested in, in thinking that this is actually something that is possible to do. Well, tell us about Justin Bland getting started on the trumpet, like first note, where did you how did you hear about it who got you interested in it tell us about like the the very beginning going to elementary school the first thing that you do is like recorder so i kind of picked up recorder um like third grade um but i knew i wanted to play like in the band and obviously recorders weren't in the band um i didn't know what instrument i wanted to play but my mom actually thought that trumpet would be good for me so she in a way picked the instrument for me she rented it um so i started 
that in fifth grade, you know, like a lot of young people, I didn't, I didn't have musicians in my family. So it's when you don't have that push, a lot of the young people won't want to practice. And I was actually one of those people who wasn't really so thrilled <laughs> about practicing, you know, from the very beginning, even though I wanted to do it. And I have a lot of students like that, actually, that they're, they're kind of passionate about it. But, you know, when you're young, you don't really, you kind of want that instant gratification and without having to work for it. I kind of heard the potential in myself, which made a circle of me wanting to practice and then get better. And then that made me want to practice more. By the time I reached high school, I kind of knew that that was one of what I wanted to major in when I got to college. So then I applied for college, applied to, oh, I applied to a bunch of different schools, but I actually really wanted to go to University of Maryland to study with Chris Gecker. And that was one of the places I got accepted, picked up Baroque trumpet there. Chris actually had a trumpet on his shelf. Um, so that was kind of my first experience. I asked him if I could borrow it. He said yes. And so I kind of played it. I think it was actually my undergraduate where I borrowed it. So I played it. Once I started playing it more than I knew I wanted to specialize in Baroque trumpet. Um, so I ended up doing my doctorate in modern trumpet performance at UNLV. What was that like to get a to doctorate? My degree is not in music, so I have no idea what it's like to go through those kinds of rigors. What's it like to be in that environment? I mean, it's just like, when you're doing, I guess, any other degree, because you're kind of surrounded with like-minded people. I did have more passion, admittedly, for early music. So it was really nice to be around other people. I wanted to go ahead and do my doctorate while I was still young, because I know a lot of people will go into the real world and then maybe come back. But I was kind of afraid that if I chose that path, <laughs> that I wouldn't want to come back. And I kind of wanted to, to have it. So I decided to, to basically go ahead and do it so I would basically be done with school and go into the real world. So that was kind of like my strategy. I think it also made it easier not taking a break because I was already kind of in a in the mindset of being a student. You know, I always love learning. So like being in an environment where you're learning, I thrive off of that. At what point did you move to Copenhagen? Uh, almost immediately. It was like a year break that I took. I was actually applying for some teaching jobs. And as we all know, getting those is quite difficult. You know, when I was doing my doctorate, I actually had taken a few auditions. I think some of them might have been during that year off in Copenhagen. I mean, obviously I didn't win any of them, but it was there visiting you know, the area. I really kind of thought that it would be a place to, to be. So I ended up moving. And how long have you been there? Since the beginning of 2016. Five years-ish, and you took that mandatory break because of the COVID-19. How did that go for you? It's definitely a, a tricky thing. I mean, and it's still affecting me now. Everybody's kind of dealing with, you know, COVID and it's still going on. But it's like frustrating when you have something that you're really looking forward to doing that is kind of threatened. And I'm in that situation now where I'm supposed to go to Portugal. It's been hard. And there have been a lot of performances that I've unfortunately didn't get to do. And especially 2020, it's not always a linear thing with freelancers where things always get better, but it seems to have been that my progression was, it was actually building up every year. So 2020 was supposed to be my most fruitful year in a way. And so that was kind of devastating when all that hit, because I had a bunch of like concerto performances and all these really exciting things were supposed to happen. That was hard. In the time, you know, when I couldn't travel and perform, I started doing a little bit more with some projects that I had started like with uh, music editions. I was kind of spending a lot of time doing computer work in addition to online teaching, which I had already been used to because I maintain some students in the States 
um, after I moved. So I kind of was familiar with that. So it wasn't a big adjustment. So I had some online teaching work and, and such, but it was still, as it's been for everybody, devastating, very sad to have all these things that were either canceled or postponed. It seems to me that you get there in 2016 and there's always a process of breaking into a new scene. It probably takes two or three years. I don't, I don't know what it was for you, but you, it sounded like you were just on the cusp of finally saying, I've, quote, arrived, for lack of a better term. And then all of a sudden, it seems like you may have just been back at square one. I think it's very fortunate that the early music world is small. So, I mean, despite the fact that I've missed out a lot, I know I'm not forgotten. Not just the the whole early music world being small, but the early trumpet world being quite small. So it's not that I'm, I'm fearful. In a way, I did miss out on some new performances with the new connections and groups that I hadn't worked with. So I guess in that way, things don't get rescheduled and that is like a devastating blow. But I mean, overall, I'm not so worried, but it's still heart crushing. Take us to 2016. You just finished your DMA. Brand new. You're an American with a mohawk playing trumpet. I mean, you don't see that many people like you doing what you do. So you had to have stood out just a little bit, I'm going to guess, in Denmark. But what, what was it like to break into that scene there? I think one of the things that made it appealing to be in Denmark, I mentioned before that there aren't necessarily like the hugest amount of like trumpet jobs. It's not like Germany where you have more of them, but there are fewer players. There are, of course, players who can play, but not many who are specialists of those who do play because so many players play a lot of modern and there's a lot of really good modern players here. A lot of people don't work on necessarily playing principal on like the harder things. So it ended up being a a very good place for me because that's exactly what I like to do. I think it, you know, something beneficial, a mutual benefit where I get to do what I like to do. And then the groups have somebody actually likes to kind of work on the, on the principal parts. So then they don't have to necessarily import as many people to, to play those more specialized parts. Was there anyone there in Copenhagen that saw a promise in you? They like you and they kind of took you under their wing, was kind of a mentor to you in those first year, year and a half, two years, maybe? I definitely was trying, I mean, like I'm naturally like a very, very shy person. And so it was very difficult for me. One of my friends, Klaus Bjorn Olsen, going over to his apartment and just kind of playing, he's another trumpet player in the area and kind of, you know, just playing with him and kind of getting to know him and building up a friendship with him. So I think he was um, somebody, it, it was really kind of nice to actually find another Baroque trumpet player. And then also just kind of, talking to non-trumpet players. Like my first regular kind of church gig was Tingstilkirke with my friend Lena Langbala. She's a cornetto player. I kind of connected with her early on and she was actually the one who suggested I get in contact with Klaus. So a lot of people who are not trumpet players as well kind of networking with them. Because I mean, a lot of times you get hired by non-trumpet players. What non-musical activities do you do that keep you motivated and interested in playing music at a very high level? When I get when I get away, it's mostly like just going on walks. I mean, the area is just so beautiful. I'm not so far from the water. That kind of relaxes me, just going on walks and just uh, and things like that. Do you have it like a morning routine or anything? Like, do you do yoga, anything like that? No, actually, my morning routine right now is I get up really early and that's when I do my practicing. <laughs> like, I okay. will get up at like... 
by five thirty, and then like do my practice like really early in the morning. So that way it's done. And how much do you practice a day? Um, it depends um, on what I'm doing. I would say around two hours or so. All on natural trumpet? Well, it depends in terms of like trumpet wise. I actually don't practice so much on modern trumpet these days. I mean, I teach on it, and if I have to to do a gig. And of course, I'll practice and I'll do some things to kind of stay in shape, but not so much. I mean, there's some days where I don't really practice modern trumpet, even though I guess because of my teaching schedule, I'll generally play it every day. But I also, as you mentioned, I sing. So sometimes that practice time encompasses uh, that and also sometimes my recorder playing. You know, I'll kind of divide up my time depending on what I'm preparing and what I have to do. All right. So I'm not that familiar with... I've kind of messed around with a natural trumpet myself, but I don't know the rep that well. So I want to know, what is the biggest dragon to slay on the natural trumpet? Well, I guess right now, I mean, it's the the 300th anniversary of the Brandenburg Concertos. So (laughs) this year is a big Brandenburg year. So that's one of the things, I mean, if we're talking about a specific piece that's relatively standard, there are a lot of very difficult concertos that nobody really plays. But in terms of things that people play, that would be one of the things that is really tricky. And it comes down to almost the same issue that you have on piccolo trumpet, the, the idea of endurance and playing quite high for that amount of time. Because of the nature of what we do, and we play on the harmonic series and everything needs to be higher for us to play melodies. So these things with endurance uh, tend to be issues that we have to, to find ways to overcome, as well as, of course, having a, a reliable high register. I mean, again, things that you know, modern trumpet players consider, but considering the the limitations note-wise of our instrument, we're kind of forced to like live up there but from a technical standpoint, but also especially if we're more from the modern world or if we kind of divide our time, if we're kind of thinking about historical articulations and historical approaches, it sounds like the instrument is easier and more natural to play. Um, if you kind of give them more of a modern approach with equal articulation in places where they don't belong, or even just the way that we maybe don't think about kind of lightness and floating. Even if we can kind of play the instrument, it doesn't sound as natural. So we have to also think about those aspects. That's why everything is written so high is because that register is the only register where we can play like scales. Otherwise, our notes are spaced out. And because our instrument is twice as long, it's not like playing on a B-flat trumpet where you have to play extremely high. When you get to that high C, then you can start to play a scale. Of course, it's a little bit lower there, but still, we need to kind of be set to be able to play higher. How does one go about preparing for a career playing natural trumpet? Is there a certain threshold that one should uh, strive to attain before they should attempt to play it on a regular basis? I think a lot of people end up being in a situation where start out by playing like lower parts, Mm -hmm. and then they kind of eventually play the higher part. I mean, I learned this way. A lot of it's listening based. Of course, you do your research, especially if you go to school for it, like you're reading treatises and all these kind of things. But like a lot of it comes from just listening because of course we don't 100% know how things sounded because there's no recordings. Um, But we have people who have like, who have studied it and they, on the basis of the evidence that we have, make informed guesses of what happened. So listening to other professionals um, is a is a big way. My very first like really professional gig um, was playing third trumpet with the Washington Bach Consort on a cantata. So like just being around 
all the other musicians, you kind of soak up a lot of information. That's the best thing to do. I know that people have reached out to me and wanted to like kind of do like a lesson or something. And, you know, this happens again in the modern world as well. And then, you know, you hear them and then you, you ask them if they want to play with you for like a concert or something. So, you know, it's a lot of this just breaking in and kind of learning from other people. And I think that's uh, quite an important approach to, especially something as small as the early music world, trying to get in touch with people is a, is a really good way of kind of breaking in. And then of course, trying to actually study the historical aspect of, of playing um, so that you can actually not just technically play well, but you can actually play very stylistically. It seems to me that you would have to have a, a healthy ego. So let's say you can play like a B-flat trumpet, for example, and you can play it really well, but then you try out a natural trumpet. For you, did it feel like you were just playing a brand new instrument? Yeah, it was definitely not one of those things where I picked it up and it was like, oh, this is working perfectly. It, you know, it took time to really sound good on the instrument. I mean, things don't transfer immediately. Even for good players who maybe they do, and then you still have to learn like style and all these things. Mm-hmm. So all of the the approach isn't you know exactly the same, even if you're very technically proficient. So there's a lot of things that you wouldn't really think about doing on mm-hmm. modern instruments that you need to do or on the early instruments to get them to sound mm-hmm. natural. And what do you think would be the biggest adjustment between like a, just a B-flat trumpet to a, a natural trumpet? Um, one thing that I hear a lot is like the just with the articulation. Um, you know, in the modern world, we're kind of taught in general to be very consistent with the way that we articulate. If we see like a passage, we try to get all the articulations, assuming that sound the same. That's a very unnatural thing to do an early instrument. We kind of think about emphasizing strong beats and the weak beats. And of course, this is something that's not notated. It's more jazz in a way where you see something on the page and you just know stylistically that it's not supposed to be as it appears. And so kind of understanding that I think is one of the things that takes some time to do, especially if you're like really rigorously trained to approach music in a certain way. Of course, changing habits is always a difficult thing, no matter what the habit is. So maybe the biggest challenge is the mental challenge, not necessarily physical. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it ends up being quite a, a mental game and, and figuring out how to, to make the instrument really sing. Uh, with these kind of, this different way of thinking about playing. That's got to be quite a feeling to tackle this natural trumpet, which is very difficult to play, even for, you know, even a professional on a modern trumpet will pick up a natural trumpet and it's, it's just a totally different beast. And I would imagine that it would be very satisfying to finally get to that level. It sounds like music. You've slayed this giant you actually can make it sound like something that people want to hear. It's a very rewarding feeling, especially because audiences understand how difficult the instrument is. If you just look at it you know, and without having the valves, I mean, it just looks like it's a hard instrument to play. Audiences can accept a performance that's not as musical because they will sympathize sometimes, but it's like really satisfying when you can get the audience not to think about how hard the instrument is because it's the approach is so musical, which is, of course, what we all try to do on any instrument. But I think it uh, on an instrument like trumpet or even something like cornetto, which is also quite difficult to play, that has a very naturally vocal sound. But I mean, technically, it's quite a beast to play because of its flexibility. But on, on those difficult instruments, uh, I think there's an extra amount of satisfaction that comes with being able to coax musicality out of the, the instrument. Well, this has been a really fun interview. We're running short on time because I have another call in about 10 minutes. So 
I need to wrap things up, but I have just one final question for you. And this might sound a little bit kind of woo-woo, but when you're playing, let's, let's just use Bach, for example, because you just, you mentioned it earlier. And you're playing um, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto. Do you ever feel any sort of connection to the composer? If you're playing something here in 2021, something that was written 300 years ago, sometimes 400 years ago. I mean, what, what is it like? Do you ever feel like you're carrying on someone's legacy by playing their music? One thing, uh, maybe this isn't maybe a direct answer, but it's something kind of related. Um, when I play like early music, I feel like the, the performer is always part of the, the process. If you look at like these scores, you'll notice that there are not as many markings in the scores. And it doesn't mean that nothing happens. It just means that um, as a performer, either there, there are certain things that were implicitly done that you just know to do. But I also, I think an aspect where the performer is in a way part of the compositional process because of the freedom that we have in terms of the decision-making. And so you kind of feel a connection in that sense. You're part of the, the process. So it's not that the composer specified that you have to do this exactly this way. It's not like Mahler or Hindemith where you kind of follow certain things. Um, you have a lot more flexibility and you can do things and it's not wrong. So I think that you have that kind of connection uh, to the composer because even though the, the piece isn't written specifically for you, it feels like uh, the composer gives you the ability to be more part of that process, part of the compositional process in a way. It seems to me like going back to that idea of just being familiar with uh, the nuances of the craft. You said earlier that some of the biggest challenges is the mental aspect of, of, the, of the craft. And once you understand those nuances and the, um, what was kind of what was acceptable and expected of the player back then, it, it informs you as to how to go about it. But at the same time, you're still, it's still a living, breathing composition. It's not, it wasn't just written 300 years ago and that's set in stone. That's one thing that appeals to us in general as early musicians and not to like say that other music doesn't have this aspect of living and breathing, but it's, you know, just stylistically because of how little was put in the music and the scores, mm -hmm. you feel like you have this ability to kind of bring different aspects and you don't have to follow what somebody else does necessarily. I mean, as long as you're doing it within what we understand to be the correct stylistic approach, there's a lot of flexibility within that. So I think that appeals to a lot of us because it doesn't feel as rigid as other music can feel to, to us musicians. Are there heated debates between like Baroque trumpet players as to how to interpret a certain passage? Like if you do something, are you going to get stink eye from Nathaniel Mayfield? It's not actually not so bad. I mean, I think there are also these debates within the trumpet world, you know, between vented and non-vented playing. So there are actually some heated debates. I mean, there are actually some heated debates about things in terms of like three holes and four holes. There are some players who just really are adamant about one way. I mean, I'm not that kind of player of course if i'm playing something in a particular situation of course you know as anybody would want you want people to match you in that particular situation but i'm actually quite flexible and open-minded to different interpretations of things so I, I think there there are people who would have debates about certain things um, but i think in general we tend to be quite open-minded just with the the nature of early music in general well those debates are just proof that people are passionate about it and at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's just it's just trumpet. It's just music people 
Don't worry about it. The sun is still going to rise from the east tomorrow morning. Don't worry about it. My guest has been Justin Bland. We can find him on the web at justinblandtrumpet.com. This is not just a one-page wonder website. He has a lot of sheet music. He's got probably 20 or 30 sound clips of him playing. Not only playing, but singing too. This guy is just very, very uh, well-accomplished young man just in his in his short time in the professional music world. So Justin, I wanted to say thank you for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And many congratulations on your success and wish you much in the future. Thank you. It was definitely a pleasure getting a chance to talk to you. Trumpet Dynamics tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. It also tells my own story. Join me on this journey through the world of making music and making life at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. I have blogs, videos, event calendar, and much more. And of course, if you just want to access this great podcast, just remember the URL, trumpetdynamics.com, and you're off to the races. Looking forward to the next time. Be well.